Welcome to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. This is your co-host, Dan Worley. Uh, we have a great year-end episode here, uh, a really fun topic. We're going to go ahead and try to count down the top 10 sports law stories from 2016. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, sports lawyer, Daniel Wallach. Dan, how are you? I'm doing fine, Dan. Happy New Year. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's apropos that we're doing our top 10 uh, list of 2016 in 2017, just so that we can have the last word on the subject. And, and it was very difficult narrowing down the, uh, you know, the top 10. We probably could easily have come up with 20 to 30. Uh, but I think this is a fairly representative list, and I'm looking forward uh, to going through it with you and our special guest. And Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? Yeah, we have a, just a great guest on. And I, 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 when I thought when we started talking about this topic, I was like, we need to get Ian because Ian is the guy that tracks from week to week all the top uh, sports law stories going on. Um, Ian Gunn is his name. He's a New Orleans attorney. He's also a writer for the uh, our friends, the website sportsesquires.com. And what I was referring to is what are called the sports law links. And Ian, they come out every Monday, is that right? Yeah, they're every Monday. And it, it's literally every Monday. I mean, I think Ian may have missed like a week the entire year. And it was because he was probably out of the country on vacation or something. But the no man excuse. is very consistent. No excuse for that. <laughs> I, I took a week off for uh, for first year anniversary trip, uh, and I think uh, they're coming out tomorrow because of New Year's instead of uh, on on Monday. So, well, perfect. Uh, this podcast is coming out tomorrow. We're recording on Monday night, and it's coming out yeah. Tuesday morning. So, when you're well, listening, well, they'll already be out. Will this podcast make the cut? Ian? Well, that depends on when you get the link posted, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a challenge. I might be up late now. Uh, well, Ian, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, do you have any words about the t- year in sports law 2016? Well, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I think that this year maybe was different from previous years. I've been covering sports law just in the sheer number of big cases. I mean, every year there's always something going on in sports law. Um, little things here or there, but I think there were just so many cases that blew up and were huge in the various sports um, and in the nature of the media coverage. Uh, And I think that there were so many cases that reached higher levels, whether it's the appellate level, the Supreme Court level, um, huge investigations, the court of arbitration for sport. So I think this year was a little unique in terms of just the sheer media attention to certain big cases. There seemed to be more big cases this year than in previous years, at least from my experience. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, Dan and I have actually touched on this. We talked about it, I think. And I really like thought about whether that's just happenstance or whether it's more of a, a fact of the media covering it more closely and there's more sports law in the news and people will care more now or maybe I'm just paying more attention so we Certainly, think they're more important been, than they are. There's definitely been a rise in interest in sports law and I think that's not just because of some of these big cases. I mean, certainly we saw, especially in the Northeast, a huge interest in sports law because of the Flategate. Um, but just generally around sports, I mean, 20 years ago, no one was paying attention to, you know, how much cap space does my team have? You know, what are the sort of cap maneuvers or, or sort of legal maneuvers that my team can do to get this guy off a of suspension? There's so much more knowledge and interest among fans about 
how the law and how you know business affects their sports teams and the sports they're interested in. I think a big part of that is the internet and the access to information. Um, but the, everybody is so much more interested in these sports all issues, and so that drives the media coverage. If eyeballs are going to be looking at this story, they want the media wants to have it covered, and they want to be able to cover what's going on in court because people will read it. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's the rise of Twitter uh, and competition among news outlets and even among sports law commentators. You have uh, this this you know, monumental growth in the number of you know lawyers that uh, you know speak cogently on sports law issues. I mean, ten years ago, maybe it was like Mike McCann, Gabe Feldman, and a few others, and now uh, it's endless. Uh, their online publications, you know, Vocative, USA, USA Today is constantly doing investigative pieces. So nothing escapes the attention of the news media and, and, and the, the Twitter sphere. Uh, we are on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So the stories that got scant attention or would have gotten scant attention five years ago, 10 years ago, are now on this endless loop of commentary and interest. Yeah, I think a great example of uh, this access to information that we would never have had before Twitter, um, before more people like us out there is, was one of the cases that may or may not have made the top 10. We'll have to wait and see, but Deflategate and um, you know, I know both of you, both of you two, had just unbelievable coverage of Deflategate, and not only commentary about what was happening, but actually, you know, tweeting out parts of pleadings and explaining what they mean, explaining how they fit into context, and people were just eating that up. You guys were getting hundreds and hundreds of retweets, um, and, and fans were asking hundreds of questions, and I know that sometimes that led into late Friday nights into early Saturday mornings, and it was just kind of a wild experience. And so, um, you know, things like that really grew, uh, I think, all three of our followings, um, but also grew an interest among the the average sports fan that wasn't necessarily a lawyer, but now had access to this information about how things were argued in courts and by the lawyers. And, I mean, I guess I'll take this one. Uh, That's how Ian Gunn and I met. I didn't know Ian before Deflategate. Uh, he and I, uh, you know, started tweeting, you know, live tweeting the court filings in Deflategate for five or six successive Friday nights in a row. It just seemed on every Friday night there was a key document that was released on Pacer. And he, he and I just, or Dan and I are by what we do on our Friday nights. Yeah, <laughs> on my birthday, no less, on Friday, you guys August seventh. Are outing 7th, yourselves. It's bad. On August seventh, Friday night, my birthday. Uh, I spent my birthday behind a computer screen tweeting segments of the NFLs and the NFLPAs, you know, you know, motion papers and our followings. And I didn't do this, you know, for Twitter hits, but uh, within the span of 24 hours, my Twitter following, you know, quadrupled. And I'm sure Ian, you know, experienced a similar, uh, you know, uptick in the, you know, in his followers and people who are, you know, interested in his, uh, you know, in his commentary. And that kind of catapulted us and Dan as well. And uh, I, I think it began probably the most exciting, uh, from a sports law perspective, the most exciting, you know, four or five week period in the entire Deflategate saga. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, with that, we'll we'll get right into it. We'll get into our, as yeah. I mentioned, we did we ranked the top ten stories, and here's here's what we did. I, I emailed these guys. I said, listen, give me your top ten. I'll make my top ten, and then we weighted them. So um, all three of us made our top ten. Uh, if one of us rated 
one case or one story first, it would get 10 points, second, nine points, etc. And then I added that all together and made a, a master top 10. Um, and we're going to go through that in a second. But I wanted to start with just listing off, as Dan mentioned, there was probably, you know, 20 or 30 that went into consideration. And we have a little list here of sort of honorable mention that didn't make the final cut, but deserve uh, a mention. And those include WikiLeaks, the Joe Mixon tape, the Aaron Andrews trial, the NFL team relocations, still going on, the U.S. women's national team labor struggle, also still going on, Dennis Weidman lawsuit against the NHL, still going, FIFA corruption, still going, um, and then also, like we just talked about, kind of a general note of the broader coverage of sports law in the media sphere. Do um, you guys have any comments on the honorable mentions? Well, they, for good reason, are not in our top ten, but several of those stories are likely to um, metastasize, so to speak, in 2017. Joe Mixon uh, will be a story worth watching if he declares for the NFL draft. I think and he's we'll, coming back next year. I, you know, we, we had a podcast episode on this. Uh, I think he's coming out. Well, he's, uh, he announced he's going back to school. Yeah, he did. He did. He did announce that. But I think oh, okay. as a running back, uh, well, it's, it's not final. But as a running back, he takes a, a significant risk with his health and with his future career earnings. If he goes back to college and, and gets, you know, um, you know, a severe injury or, or misses time, I, I, I think it's too perilous a position uh, to simply roll the dice and think that he can rehabilitate his image a year, a year down the road and maybe become a first-round draft pick uh, after another year in college. I think the die is cast, the damage is done, and he might as well just come out and play football. Clearly, he's an NFL-caliber running back. So uh, if he comes out, the story will, will definitely transition from honorable mention to possibly a top-ten story uh, next year, and, and, and you may be right about his ultimate fate. Uh, maybe he does go back. Right. And I think I think the similar, you know, along the lines with that is, you know, the NFL team relocations um, is certainly something that, you know, obviously still ongoing with you know, the Raiders potentially moving. But we've already started to see lawsuits filed by Rams fans against the Rams for leaving St. Louis. Uh, I think there's a loss. There was a lawsuit recently about uh, season ticket holders in St. Louis being upset. And so certainly, you know, when the you know, with the Chargers you know, moving with the Raiders potentially moving. Um, and certainly there's going to be more fallout from the Rams. More lawsuits are going to be filed in 2017 related to that. Certainly, I think the, the FIFA corruption story, which wasn't something that kind of broke in 2016, which I think is why it kind of was more of an honorable mention. Um, but that's something that we're going to continue to see the fallout for for years to come, obviously. I mean, that, that organization is going to be affected for years uh, from all of the the corruption scandals and, and issue, legal issues that are going on with that. Yeah, and I think the one for me that stands out in that list is the uh, Dennis Weidman lawsuit. It really was, you know, I think the only reason it didn't get more attention that it did is because it's NHL, it's not a huge name player, it's not Tom Brady, in other words, but it really was the reverse to Flakegate. It also involved a concussion and so it kind of had all these sports law issues wrapped into one case, and it's really, really a, a wild scenario that all came together at once. And I, you know, the the summary judgment, uh, which is going to decide the whole case, um, the parties have agreed to, has been filed, argued, it's ready to go. I mean, I think any day now that story would come out. So that's definitely one in early 2017 to keep an eye on. 
Um, I think, too, for for people who want to learn more about sports law and and are interested in that sort of thing, that's kind of neat case to read about just because it's not this broad, wide-reaching case like FIFA or, you know, like NFL team relocations or everything under the sun. It's on a specific issue, and you really can kind of see how the different legal issues affect sports, um, what the process is uh, in this one little case. Uh, in the NHL, and it's a good primer for a lot of sports law issues. Yeah, I, I think what kept the Weidemann case off our top ten list was uh, the absence of any decision. You know, it, it was uh, it, it was briefed, and, and the lawsuit was filed in mid June, and the parties dispensed with oral argument. There were no um, you know live you know court arguments made by lawyers uh, from both sides. Unlike Deflategate, which was argued uh, before Judge Berman over a you know several day period, then there was an appellate oral argument in Deflategate. Uh, Weidemann had none of that. The parties stipulated uh, to submit it to submit it on the papers and have uh, you know the judge in the case decide it solely on the basis of the paperwork. And so th- there was no live court hearing, and we're still waiting for decision. So perhaps in 2017, uh, Weidemann could be a much bigger story, particularly if the lower court uh, agrees with the National Hockey League and we end up with a um, with, with sort of inherently irreconcilable cases within the same courthouse. Uh, you, 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 you have deflate gates, uh, suspension being upheld by the Second Circuit, and then potentially the NHL's um, argument in, in uh, uh, vacating an arbitration award could succeed. So it sets up uh, a, a very interesting dynamic depending on the outcome of the case. Yeah, absolutely. And not only could we see that district court opinion, but as you guys noted, we could see the appeal and then maybe even, you know, a Supreme Court petition, obviously unlikely, yep. but who knows? Um, all right. So moving on, there was three case, there was three stories. I don't know if you should have cases or stories, probably stories that um, got votes from us, but didn't make the top 10. The first one is the NCAA amateurism cases. And that sort of entails the O'Bannon decision uh, the Jenkins case that's out there, the Alston case that's out there, and a few others. Um, and I think similar to what we were talking about with Weidman, this case, these cases, you know, didn't really have, maybe been top ten cases in other years, but this just wasn't the year for that. It, it could definitely be a huge story next year or the following year as well, depending on how this Jenkins case goes. But um, that was one of them. The next one was the minor league class action lawsuit and i think ian you're the one of the ones that voted for this what do you think about that one yeah that was um it's an interesting case that's going on uh the the court actually granted mlb's motion to decertify the class i mean basically what the case is that minor league baseball players are suing um in relation to the fair labor standards act basically saying that they're being paid below minimum wage and um the, the court actually granted the decertification motion from the MLB saying basically that the, the cases were too different. Each player's situation was, was too distinct from other players uh, to count as a class. But the interesting thing to look forward going into 2017 is that actually the court has allowed the plaintiffs to uh, repropose a new class um, that's a little bit more defined uh, to try to allow the plaintiffs to meet the class action standards that they have to meet so certainly that's a, a big issue that could affect all of minor league baseball which is huge it affects so many athletes um, and so many fans as well so that's definitely one to keep an eye on for 2017 that had a, an interesting decision this year 
Yeah, yeah, Ian, how are the classes going to be redefined? I mean, uh, the, the motion to uh, certify limited classes remains pending. Uh, is this a class that's only limited to current minor league players? Is that uh, ha how the modification of the classes is going to work? Should she grant or should the judge grant uh, certification? Well, I don't think it's, it's a, the, the difficulty isn't between current or former. The difficulty is between how some of these players' cases are. I mean, there's, there's different types of minor league baseball and there's different player situations. So some players might have played for, you know, two, three months. Some might have played for a whole season. Some may have been called up and, and then sent back down. Um, there's all kinds of different issues in terms of the amount of time that they're playing and so I think the court, when looking at uh, you know, how much they're being paid and what their situations are and what their benefits are, is, is trying to say these are very disparate cases um, and, and the uniformity is not really there. Yeah, well, I, I hope to see uh, a positive outcome for the minor league, minor league players because uh, this notion that Major League Baseball has this exemption uh, from having to pay overtime uh, based on this seasonal or amusement you know, exemption, I think is a crock. And the, the players have historically been underpaid. They, they earn less than minimum wage workers when you average in or factor in the number of hours that they devote to playing baseball mandatory on almost a year-round basis. So uh, this case has the potential for upending the entire system of compensation for minor league baseball players. Yeah, so the next one was the final one before we reached the top 10. It actually got seven votes or seven points, so it missed the cut by one vote. And that was the NFL concussion settlement. And again, I think this was a little bit anticlimactic this year. Um, we just had an entire podcast on this topic. So if you're interested in it, I would just recommend checking it out with Paul Anderson. He's, he was fantastic. He had a great background of the case. Um, again, another one where... That struggle is finally over with. The settlement is finalized. There will be no Supreme Court intervention. But now there are these 50 opt-out cases where there will be individual players going after the NFL. And you'd have to think that a few of those, hopefully, well, at least a few of them, will go ultimately go to trial and not be settled, although maybe they'll settle all of them. But um, you know, I think when we finally get a player against the NFL in a, you know, a jury trial, it could be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the one item on an honorable mention list that I really disagreed uh, with its placement. I think it should be on the top ten list because it's not only the NFL. It's, it's you know, NHL, WWE, the NCAA cases. I think we've just hit the tip of the iceberg with concussion litigation. And um, the settlement, which was approved by the Third Circuit in, in, in 2016, and then the Supreme Court denied certiorari, I think I think is going to open up a window to even more uh, con sports concussion litigation, and we're starting to see it. Um, the 50 suits filed against the NCAA, the WWE has a number of cases, and the NHL has come into focus as well. So I think this is going to be a major sports law story moving forward uh, for at least the next several years, particularly as more knowledge and science develops around the diagnosis of CTE. Look at that. We made it 20 minutes, and we finally got to the top 10. Sorry, audience. Uh, we will leave you hanging no longer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so number 10, finally there, uh, HGH Gate. 
which is one of the stories that I actually sort of forgot about because it, it was a big story for a couple months there and then fell off the map. But if you don't remember, uh, Al Jazeera, the news outlet, came out with a documentary called The Dark Side, uh, which accused Peyton Manning was the headliner, obviously, but also Clay Matthews, Julius Peppers, James Harrison, Mike Neal, Ryan Howard, Ryan Zimmerman um, of using PEDs. Um, and it became a huge story, and there was threats of defamation lawsuits. There was a big tension between many of the NFL players, not named Peyton Manning, and the NFL to uh, meet with Roger Goodell and talk to him about these allegations. Ultimately, it didn't end up in too much, right? So ultimately, Peyton Manning was cleared. He allegedly cooperated with Goodell. The rest of the players finally met with Goodell, were clear. There was no NFL suspensions, no MLB suspensions, um, most of the defamation lawsuits ended up not happening, most notably Peyton Manning, who originally threatened to do so. But we do have two lawsuits which have emerged into one, and those are um, Ryan Zimmerman and Ryan Howard, both filed federal lawsuits, defamation lawsuits in D.C. Circuit Court, um, D.C. District Court, excuse me, against Al Jazeera and against Liam Collins, who was the reporter uh, or the, the mole, if you will, in the case. And uh, Al Jazeera has moved to dismiss those cases, and we're just waiting on a decision there. So we'll see um, if those lawsuits end up moving forward. But uh, what what made you guys include HGHgate in the top ten? Well, I think from my standpoint, this was kind of like the first big new sports law story of the year. I mean, this broke, you know, back in January, I think, uh, or late December. Um, and I think just the nature of all the, this story kind of hit a bunch of different points. One, Peyton Manning obviously was the big headliner and this broke, you know, right as the Broncos are making their playoff run, the rumors that this is Peyton Manning's last year and he may retire. He's trying to get that second Super Bowl to cap off his career uh, you know, and I think right as that's ha- all happening, this Al Jazeera story breaks that he's been doping with HCH. Um, and then you toss in all the other big name players like Ryan Zimmerman, Ryan Howard, um, Clay Matthews, and the media attention all, all of a sudden on this doping issue that we haven't seen. We've seen it in, in, um, in baseball, certainly, but we haven't seen HGH issues really hit the media big in the NFL the way this story did. Um, so I think that was kind of my rationale for putting it in there. Um, if it had amounted to a little bit more, we probably would have been talking about this higher on the list. But I think just the fact that it implicated these players um, in this sort of serious allegation, and certainly it's been continuing with the defamation uh, lawsuits that are ongoing. Um, I think the irony is, too, looking back, Al Jazeera America folded uh, and closed up shop pretty soon after the report happened. Of course, Al Jazeera, the entire news entity is still going, but the organization that promoted the documentary and, and was engaged in creating it is now gone, basically. Um, but I think just the sheer high-profile nature of the allegations and the, and the athletes and the timing of it with Peyton Manning's Super Bowl run is why I put it up there. Yeah, I, I think the story should have been much higher on the list, and the reason it wasn't is that the NFL had no appetite to pursue it. I mean, remember what happened with Major League Baseball? They filed a tortious interference lawsuit against a, a, a Florida HGH mill in order to get access to the records. 
Here, the NFL lacks subpoena power over the Geyer Institute, which is the HGH, uh, you know, um, lab in Indianapolis. They lacked subpoena power over um, Al Jazeera. And I think the NFL wanted to let this issue die uh, because it had the potential to be very, you know, wide ranging and broad in its sweep. And when you're dealing with Peyton Manning, you know, who is, uh, you know, basically a national hero, um, I, I think the NFL didn't want to go there. Uh, you know, clearly where there's smoke, there's fire. And I recall that, uh, you know, the, 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 um, Manning's team never disputed that these HGH shipments were sent to his house or that he was treated by an HGH lab. Um, and had this been Tom Brady, I'm not so certain that the NFL would have as easily and as readily look the other way. So I think this was the great whitewash of 2016 rather than the great sports law story of 2016. It's interesting. I, I, I on one hand, I want to think that the, the NFL learned from deflate Gabe. But on the other hand, if you look at the way that the NFL went after the other players, um, you know, while saying that Peyton cooperated and he's been cleared, but now we're going to go after, you know, Peppers and Matthews and James Harrison. I remember, remember the James Harrison fiasco here. James Harrison said he would, right. <laughs> he would meet him if, if Roger Goodell came to his practice or came to his house, I think it was. It was yeah. actually pretty hilarious. Um, yeah, and, and, and Peyton Manning was going to file a defamation lawsuit. And, I mean, come on. He hires a crisis management team, Ari Fleischer. Uh, I mean, they go into spin mode almost overnight, and then the story disappears. I mean, come on. Uh, I, I think it does make a lot of New England Patriots fans very angry, uh, among other issues such as walkie-talkie gate and you know, other issues where uh, the league treats other players with less of an iron fist than they've treated the New England Patriots. So it does um, you know, kind of poke at some selective enforcement issues within the NFL. It certainly was a, a very interesting contrast with the flake gate that just the decision came down just a couple months later after this all broke uh, between you know how the league treated Manning and for a, do, a do serious doping allegation, which Roger Goodell compared Brady deflating balls to uh, doping and PED usage, um, and how those two cases were treated and handled by the league. Yeah, and it's uh, one thing that also caught my eye was just that this was really the first exercise of Goodell's power after the appellate decision in Deflategate came out, which basically gave him this huge, wide-sweeping power over players. And there was this awkward tension of him getting interviews with these other guys. And it was really the first time that he flexed his, flexed his muscle and the you know, the PA ultimately backed down. The NFL ultimately didn't go anywhere with the case, obviously. They didn't do anything. But he was able to muscle his way into getting interviews over something that had very little concrete evidence. As Dan noted, there was no subpoena power, so they couldn't get any evidence. And the main guy that there was saying that these guys had doped, Charlie Sly, had completely recanted his story already over YouTube right after the documentary came out. Whether or not that was you know, a truthful recantment or not, who knows. But um, ultimately, they had very little to go on, but yet they still forced the interview. So, um, yeah. One, one of the groups... One of the great sports law names of the year, Charlie Sly. <laughs> that should be our next top ten list, sports law names. Uh, all right, moving on, number nine. Uh, by the yeah. way, HGHgate got eight total votes. Number nine, which is the Russian doping scandal, got nine votes. Um, but only one of the three of us actually voted for it. So we'll let Ian do the explaining since he's the one that voted for it. I'll take this one. Uh, yeah, I, I really... 
similar to how Dan thought, you know, HGH should have been a higher. I really think that the Russian doping scandal should have been up there. I had it number three on my list, um, and the lack of support from the two Dans drops it so far down. But uh, I thought this was a huge issue. If if you remember, among other things, um, Professor Richard McLaren's uh, water report found evidence that more than 1,000 Russian athletes had been involved in doping misconduct of some kind, whether it was actual doping or tampering with a test or trying to evade testing um, or cooperating with people who were providing uh, you know, doping supplements to athletes. And to me, just such a huge, huge issue going with the Olympics this year. Um, the Russian athletes wound up being completely banned from the Paralympics um, they were banned from several events in the regular Olympics. Um, the IOC kind of copped out and, and left each sport's governing body uh, the decision to ban whether to ban Russian athletes completely from that individual sport during the Olympics instead of kind of taking the decision to say, no, this was an actual institutional attempt to cheat uh, by the entire Russian uh, athletic system. And... Um, you know, I, th I really think they probably should have banned Russia from competing in the Olympic based upon how extensive uh, their actions were to try to cheat in sports. And I think that, you know, the IOC is still taking action against athletes for you know, test tampering and some other things. And I just saw recently, maybe a week or two ago, a, a Russian uh, sports official admitted that this was an institutional conspiracy to dope. Um, and it included not just this Olympics and this Paralympics, but previous Olympics, like the 2012 Olympics in London, were implicated. And so this is a situation where you have a country that's very big in international sports um, in terms of winning medals in the Olympics and the, and the Paralympics actually engaging in this institution-wide attempt to cheat um, with, with drugs. And so uh, it's who knows which sports are now tainted um, by having – Medals won by Russian athletes who doped, and we don't know, or or doped, and we do know, and they were allowed to um, compete. And I think that this was huge with the Olympics going on this year, and the Paralympics, and the fact that they were, this was an entire country, um, and not just any country, but a, a country that competes successfully at the Olympics and wins a lot of medals. So I thought this was a huge story, uh, especially in international sports law. Yeah, I feel. Slightly guilty for not putting it in my top ten. Obviously, this is a very subjective list, um, and, and the reason I didn't do so, I think, was just because I, I, you know, I enjoyed the Olympics this year. I just didn't quite dig into some of these issues outside of having to teach the um, the CAS arbitration system in my in my uh, sports law class this summer. But um, you know, I for whatever reason, I just didn't follow this closely. But it obviously was a really important case, affected the Olympics, which is arguably the biggest you know sporting event out there. But, uh, you know, when we came down to making the top 10, I just, I just couldn't squeeze it in. Dan, thoughts? Uh, no, and I'll, for a change, I'll sit this one out because it wasn't one of the, one of the subjects that I voted for. Uh, I think on a broader international scale, it is certainly one of the top 10, if not, you know, one of the top one, two, or three sports law stories of the year. But within the United States realm, which we, we basically cover, uh, it didn't move the needle enough for me. Um, I, I, I think... My focus has been more on the U.S. professional and amateur leagues, and, and, and it's more of an international story than it is a, a domestic story. 
Right. And I think part of the reason, too, why you know it didn't get as much coverage as it probably should have is when in the lead up to the Olympics is kind of when all the news broke. And so um, at that point, sports media has to make this decision. Well, are we going to cover the Russian doping or are we going to cover the Olympics? And it's like you're you're obligated by your job to cover the Olympics. There's so much news going on, um, especially in America with you know, all the different athletes that we have who are competing and, and the high profile uh, sports situations. And, um, you know, certainly I, I think that the, um, I remember the team at USA Today did a lot of great work on, on the Russian doping domestically. But um, the, it's the sort of thing where it didn't, it was one of those stories where it sh- you would think that it would have gotten more attention because it broke right before the Olympics. But in reality, what wound up happening is the media coverage shifted immediately to covering the actual sports. Um, and then, you know, after the Olympics pass, we get into football season and, and the NFL's king in America. So um, kind of the Olymp- the appetite for that goes away. But uh, it was one of those stories that probably should have been bitter, bigger domestically, but certainly is, is huge internationally. Yeah. I, I think for me, the Olympic story that uh, re- really got my attention uh, was the disciplinary actions taken against Hope Solo and, and uh, the swimmer Ryan Lochte. I mean, we have, um, you know, two, two of those to those athletes who are now, you know, suspended from competition as a result of, you know, in one case, a, a you know, a, a fabricated, you know, robbery and the other, you know, Hope Solo made uh, disparaging comments about the style of play that Team Sweden engaged in. So uh, for me, the sport, the Olympic story that really, really got my attention were the individual disciplinary actions, not so much the, uh, the Russian doping, although that is a much bigger uh, you know, scandal in the scheme of things. And I'm surprised hope solo didn't make it higher up the list right and i think the ryan lochte story was interesting just from the standpoint of there were so many twists and turns and at the end of it you really just didn't know what to believe it reminded me very much of in a, in a different way but it reminded me very much of the manti teo situation where th- there were so many lies or, or fabrications or uh, you know twists and turns what is going on now wait what's the new news that's coming out and that is the sort of case that that was it was just inexplicable. Yeah, I have to admit, I actually, when I was considering these, I didn't even think about the Lochte Gate. That was an epic, if short-lived, story uh, this year as well. So we'll have to at least add that to our honorable mention list. Um, the next one, number eight on our list, is the rise in athlete activism. And in two real cases that we kind of grouped together here, stuck out, obviously, the Colin Kaepernick story of him kneeling during the national anthem, which then spread to a number of other athletes at all levels. And then also the university of Minnesota boycott or, you know, threat to boycott, I guess we should call it. Uh, and, and this story got 10 votes and obviously has, they're very different types of activism and activism in sports is nothing new, but these two stories really caught the immediate attention. Like I, I can't remember at least for a number of years, What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I view the Colin Kaepernick situation and the rise in athlete activism as directly correlative to the uh, tinder block of race relations in this country. You know, you have, um, you know, a number of police shootings uh, involving white officers 
black men and the failure of of our justice system to 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 give equal justice under the law to uh, uh to individuals uh who are of color and uh when you combine that with the limited rights that athletes have under their agreements, you know, they, they have limited mobility, their compensation is restricted, they're told what to say, what to do, what to wear. I think it was inevitable that athletes would begin speaking out about the, uh, about the nature of race relations in this country. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan had always refrained from taking a stand and getting on a soapbox because he didn't want to hurt his endorsement income. But we're in a different age now. And the shocking number of incidents involving uh, you know, shootings of black men and the failures of our justice system have really you know, compelled uh, black athletes to speak out. And, and Colin Kaepernick deserves a ton of credit for, for being the one to break that barrier because he, he basically opened the door for other athletes to, I think, come out and join him. And we're about to enter a dynamic phase here with the Donald Trump presidency. I think the uh, issue of race relations are going to remain at the fore in our, in our national discussion. And I think athletes uh, speaking out and becoming active in the national discourse is going to grow significantly over the next four years. Yeah, and I think that athletes are really – uh, not to say that they athletes before didn't realize the the voice that they had or the power that they had. Certainly, there's a long history of athletes speaking out um, for all kinds of controversial issues, um, whether it's the raised fist at the Olympics um, or whatnot. But certainly, I think now even players who are on the bench, like Kaepernick was at the time. Um, are realizing that they have a voice and that they're speaking out and they can get attention and they can really impact things and really change things in a significant way. Uh, I think we're starting to see that all over the NCAA, not just with the Minnesota case, um, but you know, going back to, to last year with the Northwestern case and college players attempting to unionize, um, players are standing up all over, whether it's the NCAA or pro sports, and saying, you know, whatever these social issues are that we think need attention, um, we can actually do something about it, and our voices have some sort of impact, especially with the fans, especially in the media, um, that can actually get something done. Yeah, I think the Missouri football team was another notable example from last year as well. Um, I Just kind of comparing these two, um, I, the Kaepernick one's very, very difficult for me. I've actually never even commented on it because – it's kind of near and dear because my wife's active duty military, so I'm in a military family. So it's that angle is tough, but also you know having been a, a lawyer, having I am a lawyer, and having been through law school and con law classes, um, you know the freedom of speech is ex- um, exceptionally important. Uh, so it's tough, but I think the the case, the Minnesota case, the other one, um, hopefully is a lesson for those. Um, wanting to do these type of demonstrations that um, you really should um, be a little more prepared and, and know what you're demonstrating for exactly. I think that was a very misguided demonstration on their behalf, um, especially after reading the 50-page university report. Uh, it's really difficult to imagine anyone standing up for those players if even 1% of those allegations are true, which I'm not saying that they are, but um, even the appearance of that is not a good look. So, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, I think the Kaepernick demonstration was very well thought out and planned on his behalf. And, you know, he did it for a few games and no one even noticed. 
and then they finally noticed and the whole story blew up, but uh, the Minnesota one, on the other hand, was not. Yeah, it's kind of a, a tale of uh, two very different types of activism. One was, you know, very premeditated and thought out and, and kind of planned as this is how I'm going to do it um, and this is the message that I want to send. And, and the other one with, with Minnesota was kind of a knee-jerk reaction um, without kind of really looking into, you know, what's the situation, what's going on. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, not too political, but to try to um, relate to what you were saying earlier, Dan, uh, with the flag situation, it reminds me of the story um, of Ant- that Antonin Scalia told uh, when he actually uh, ruled in favor of, uh, um, of allowing flag burning as protected under the First Amendment. Uh, you know, he said, you know, for me as a conservative, I think that you know, flag burners should be locked up, but I think it's protected under the First Amendment. So I wrote this opinion uh, protecting it, yeah. and I had to walk down to breakfast the next morning. And my, my my wife was whistling, "It's a grand old flag." So I still had to come home to my conservative wife, upset. But that's what the First Amendment said. So I think you know one of the things with these sorts of cases is, you know, one was misguided. One, you know, we can argue about. Um, but it's also a, a great example of what makes American yeah. sports great is that, uh, you know, athletes can speak their mind, they can have an impact, um, and that's all protected under the First Amendment. Yeah, I, I have no such conflicts in my household. I, I don't have a wife from a military family or a wife who uh, has comes from a more conservative ideolo- ideology. So I'll, I'll, you know, throw a few, uh, you know, car bombs in the mix here because I think the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. You know, black men... They're dying on the street. There's a lack of accountability in the justice system. Um, and, and I think this situation uh, will become louder. And, um, you know, it's not going to begin and end. It's going to begin with Colin Kaepernick, but I don't see this going away anytime soon. I think athletes are going to increasingly uh, make their voices heard. And it's going to make white America increasingly more uncomfortable. Yeah, I agree that it's uh, definitely another one to keep an eye on moving forward. And we still see athletes kneeling at various sporting events. We'll be interesting to see if that trend continues moving on. Um, but for us moving along to number seven, <laughs> awkward transition. Yeah, um, sorry about that. I no, just had to no, put my okay. two cents in about the state of race relations in this <laughs> because it absolutely is, it's at a nadir, you know? Yeah, no, I, I got gotcha. you. Um, number seven with 12 votes. Oh. Uh, an equally as important topic, daily fantasy sports. Uh, probably would have been much higher on the list a year before, maybe. Um, but but certainly uh, warranted uh, number seven. Dan, you want to give the brief rundown of everything that happened in 2016? Well, I mean, it all, it, it all stems from the... Um, you know, the annoying advertising, which uh, took over the airwaves in, in the beginning of the 2015 NFL season, followed several weeks later by um, a, a data leak, which presumably gave um, um, insiders and employees at, at DraftKings and FanDuel uh, an unfair advantage in, in, in playing contests on the other company's sites. You know, long story short, it 
increased the uh, the heat on the fantasy sports industry and led many lawmakers to question and and um, you know law enforcement officials to question whether the activity was in fact a form of gambling which was illegal and that spurred a rise in uh, legislative activity and lobbying and throughout 2016 um, the daily fantasy sports industry successfully persuaded eight states to exp- expressly legalize fantasy sports, but that leaves a, uh, a fracture uh, throughout the country where eight states have legalized it, uh, uh, 10 or 20 are in a sort of a state of flux, and, and then the, uh, the companies are offering their contests, I think, in as many as 40 states. So over the course of the next year, over the course of the next three to five years, I think we'll start seeing an increase in, in legislative activity with more and more states uh, expressly legalizing fantasy sports. But it raises the question, if DFS is legal and is being made legal by, the, by states and it's a form of sports gambling, then how do you treat traditional sports gambling. So the DFS debate debate occurs against the backdrop of the broader question of whether and how to legalize sports betting. So I think uh, of any industry, the DFS industry is like the cat with nine lives, which should have killed it a year ago, which was the whiff of or, or the allegations of gambling coupled with a, a what could have been a widespread cheating scandal, which should have doomed any industry, basically had very little – had an initial impact on DraftKings and FanDuel. But over the course of the last year, I think these companies have um, um, you know, successfully weathered the storm and are now pointed towards the future – and trying to uh, lobby additional states. And, of course, DraftKings and FanDuel uh, have entered into a merger agreement, and we're waiting over the course of the next few months to see what the Federal Trade Commission has to say about that uh, because it does raise concerns about a potential monopoly and anti-competitive effects. So I think the biggest uh, story in fantasy sports moving forward will be whether the two behemoths of the DFS industry will be allowed to you know, will be allowed to merge. But the story of 2016 is uh, the industry rose from the ashes of near death uh, to potentially riding the ship and are now, you know, moving closer towards full legalization on a state-by-state basis. Right. And I think the the irony of, of what's been going on this year is that the DFS industry is trying to kind of put the cat back in the bag. They're doing this year what they should have been doing a year ago or even further before that is try to set themselves on a solid legal footing um, so that they can get back to the business of building their industry. And I think that, you know, if, if we had, this would be a totally different story if they had started out with state by state lobbying, if they started out by getting bills passed, um, you know, preaching, you know, even though there's not a whole lot of revenue, legislators love to talk up the fact that, oh, this could bring our state more revenue. We're in a budget crisis. You know, sell that, get the bill passed to legalize DFS in the state. And then once you've got, a, you know, especially in the big play states in New York, uh, in Florida, in California, uh, and in other states, once you've got some states saying, hey, hey, you know, this is legal for sure. We passed the law. Um, then you go out and do, you know, this you do your big advertising push. Instead, what we saw last year was this all-out advertising push. It seemed like every single game you were watching, whether it was college or NFL, every commercial almost was a DFS commercial. Um, it almost was uh, similar to election 
you know, campaign coverage where you would see all these election ads leading up to the election. Uh, and this year, you haven't really seen the ads, and, and they're really focusing on how can we get legalized, how can we resolve these legal disputes, um, and it's a sort of verse uh, you know, uh, of what they should have done. Well, Ian, it's not really a, a matter of choice. They have no choice. Um, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel aren't flush with the kind of venture capital, you know, funding that they had a year ago. The decision um, to tamp down the advertising, yeah, to, to some extent, it's a conscious decision uh, to reduce the advertising. But, you know, you know, as in the real world, they're struggling financially and economic circumstances forced them to um, enter into a merger agreement. So even if oh, they had wanted... I'm yep. just saying that what they should have done before yep. they did the big ad push was a lot yep. of money towards you know the legalization strategy and then gone with the ad push. I totally understand why they're they're not doing ads now. Is it, they don't have the money there. Uh, they're fighting all these legal battles and um, they're trying to consolidate as well. So you know it makes sense what they're doing now. I'm just saying a, a little bit yep. more foresight could have allowed them to to have the ad blast going on um, with a much better uh, legal footing. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. But they sold the notion to their investors that um, that they were 100 percent legal. Uh, to have acknowledged legal uncertainty, um, I think, would have turned off investors. And without the backing of the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and some of the major media companies, uh, I think DraftKings could very well have been dead and buried based on what happened last year. And they were able um, to get a basically a second life uh, because of who was behind them. Uh, had they had this happened. Uh, several years ago, um, they, they may not be around to talk about it today. Yeah, all good points. I think, you know, the big takeaway is that the dynamic from 2015 to 2016 really changed, and a lot had, that had to do with the, the legal battles they were fighting, and I think that ultimately forced them, forced their hand into the merger, um, and I, they may be a struggling industry, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, sports gambling traditional sports gambling is legalized in the, the relatively near future, what happens to that industry as well? So, um, because in, in my opinion, I think that a lot of their patronage would go away if they could just traditionally gamble on sports, but I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, if you would have asked me uh, this time last year what I thought the number one story for this year would be, it certainly would be this one, um, and that is the two new collective bargaining agreements in the NBA and Major League Baseball. Um, I, I think that from a, just a coverage standpoint and following it, they, these were a little bit disappointing because they were so smooth. They all they both got done relatively, um, you know, without a hitch. Uh, I think they're both going to be very fascinating agreements. We haven't seen everything that's in them. They're still drafting the finalized agreements, but all the details have been agreed to. They've been ratified. We're all set. We have labor peace for another five or six years. Um, what do you guys think about the labor disputes kind of going through with a whimper in 2016? Well, I think uh, I definitely thought these should have been higher. I mean, I had them at the top of my list for top 10 just because of the sheer length of time that these two issues are going to be affecting um, sports. The NBA, I think, goes through. 2024 and the MLBs goes through 2021. Um, I definitely think that the NBA deal is a much bigger deal than the MLB deal. The MLB, um, you know, and MLB Players Association definitely had a history of um, 
of labor peace, of getting along. Um, it's been years and years and years since they've had um, you know, a lockout or a strike. Yeah, I think they didn't. They also didn't make that many changes from what's been reported. I think a lot of it was status quo. They're just moving forward. Right. But I, I think the the big deal with the NBA was not only uh, was la- was there a, a labor dispute last time the the CBA came up um, for renegotiation and, and there was a lockout, but I think that this time you saw the new uh, NBA Players Association head Michelle Roberts came in and was, you know, basically blazing fire, uh, saying, you know, she was going to take down the league on all these different issues and, and she was going to renegotiate things. And um, initially you thought, okay, well, we're definitely going to have a showdown between the players and the league. Um, and it turns out that, uh, you know, as her tenure developed, she, I guess, wound up having developing a better relationship with Adam Silver. Um, and they wound up having a great working relationship to get this sort of thing done. I mean, it turned out it was kind of a, a, a woge bomb um, that just dropped and said, you know, NBA and NBA Players Association close to finalizing a deal it came out of nowhere. Um, you know, I, I certainly, like you were saying, didn't expect this to be so smooth. Um, but I also think it was a big deal because you look at all the big changes that the NBA has been going through with the fact that the cap jumped significantly this year, in the previous year, and there was no cap smoothing that happened, uh, I think there was a lot of concern that you know there was going to be some overreaction to the big cap jump that the league uh, you know was going to push for certain things to try to prevent this, or that the players were going to look to capitalize on this, that max salary is going to be significantly affected or potentially gotten rid of completely. And I think that what you've seen is they've made some minor ch- changes. Um, each way, but for the most part, you know, the, I think the the older players like Chris Paul and, and LeBron James are going to get be able to get the five year max contract based on thirty six and over rule being changed. Um, but for the most part, they said, "Look, the league is in a great situation right now, and we don't want to jeopardize that. that and we want to capitalize on our, on our momentum." Yeah, I, I think for me, this you know the the answer to the NBA collective bargaining issue was the fact that the pie keeps growing. You know, whether it's 50%, 49%, 51%, uh, the overall pie keeps raising every year with the uh, influx of new TV revenue. So I think this was a relatively easy deal to strike, um, you know, unlike the NFL. Oh, we have 50 players on each team, uh, over 32 teams, and an NBA roster is only 12 to 15 players. Uh, everybody makes money in the NBA. The top players make in excess of eight figures. They're in contracts. There is a shortened uh, lifespan for players to you know, earn their livelihood. So all the factors uh, that would normally give rise to a strike situation in, let's say, the National Football League simply don't exist in the NBA. Times are good. Uh, the money keeps rising, and the value of the top contracts keeps rising. Now, what had to happen this time around, which was important, was uh, for once the uh, the mid-level exception and and other exceptions are tied to the increase of revenue and are not uh, you know like flat numbers as they had been in past years. But just overall, I don't think they were. I don't think the economics were there uh, for the players to um, you know take this to court or to battle uh, you know in, in a lockout situation. There was every reason in the world uh, to settle. And with, with Billy Hunter out of the equation and a new dynamic between uh, Michelle Roberts and Adam Kessler, who the players trust, um, I, I, I just didn't think this had the possibility of, of 
getting into a lockout like it had you know several years ago. So uh, this was an easy one. I kind of disagree. Not not that the end result and all those reasons, but I just personally thought that it was going to end up in a huge battle, and that's because you know the 2011 negotiations, the, the players took a big haircut. The owners were claiming that they were losing all this money. That you know only the huge teams were profitable. The rest of the teams were losing money. We can't do this. So they they took a much leather, less percentage of the the BRI. I think they dropped like six percentage points. And I think then, it was more. It was more. It was a fifty eight to between forty nine and fifty one. So you know could be as much as nine percent. Right. And uh, so fast forward to now, the you know the league is extremely profitable. They signed this huge TV deal. The Clippers sell for two billion dollars, and the players are like, well, now we need to get our money back. We need to get our percentage back. And the fact <laughs> that they, you know, they had Michelle Roberts come in, they, you know, as, as Ian mentioned, she came out firing, um, basically saying that there, she would be shocked if there was, you know, no lock, no stoppage. And that's that was obviously posturing to a certain extent. But, um, you know, her, her history as a, a labor attorney would – demonstrate that she was going to fight tooth and nail and for them to roll over on the BRI issue. I know that um, although they didn't change the BRI number, they changed how it was calculated. So the players will get a little bit more money, but, it, but in the end for them not to get any of that BRI percentage back was pretty shocking to me that they'd accept a deal without that. But uh, I think to, to both your guys' points, the fact that the league's doing so well and they're getting bigger contracts now because of this huge TV deal, they're like, you know, it's fine. We can't, it's not worth it for us to miss games. Yeah, what I'd like to see in the future, you talk, I'm sorry, Ian, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'll make the point real quickly. Uh, as franchises are selling uh, for astronomical amounts, record amounts, like $2 billion in the case of the Los Angeles Clippers, what I'd like to see the players fight for is to include um, uh, f- increased franchise valuations, particularly when the teams are sold, to somehow capture that in BRI. Then, th- then I think the uh, money that's really available will, will reflect economic reality to carve that out and not include that in BRI basically allows the, pl- the the owners to point to operating you know income and losses without reflecting where the real money comes in when they flip the teams yeah i think i think that's a i mean that's a that's definitely a great point and i agree that that's something the players are are really losing out on but at the same time that's not really like a liquid asset or or any sort of uh, solid valuation that you know, it's it would be really hard for the players to be able to have some sort of concrete equation for them to figure out how this would affect them since valuations change so easily. You know, value you know, basically because you had somebody who was willing to buy the Clippers for two billion, the valuation of all the teams in the NBA just jumped overnight. Um, but I think uh, you know the interesting thing to me too about the NBA CBA and also the MLB is it's a case in contrast with the NFL. Uh, everyone wants to keep talking about how you know Roger Goodell has done such a terrible job, or or how also how the owners are are behind him a hundred percent because he's making all this money. I think Adam Silver has shown, look, you can still make a ton of money as a league, and yet find a way to be a responsible commissioner, find a way to um, work with the players, have a great relationship with the players, and and not to put this all on him. Obviously, Michelle Roberts has uh, done a great deal and and has worked really hard. To, to make that relationship improve, and, and both sides on, on the MLB have done that as well. But, I mean, it's definitely a tale of contrasts of how these leagues continue to build their revenue and continue to do it uh, while working with the players in a way that the NFL appears you know nowhere close to being able to do 
um, with you know one of the most bitter uh, relationships in all of sports. Yeah, I mean, I think the third piece of this is the NFL and just how terrible labor relations are there. But, you know, I think that we're so far off from their negotiations and, and uh, we still have four years, three, three or four years to go um, that in reality, I don't know how much it matters because, you know, you look at the lifespan of NFL players and probably 50% of the league is going to be out of the league by the next time uh, this comes around. We may have a new commissioner, unlikely, but it's possible. We may have a new director of PA. So I think there's time for them to patch it up, but uh, they're certainly not on good terms right now. They, they fight and file lawsuits over everything, uh, which makes life interesting for us, but um, you know, not the most efficient way to do business. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, and so I think, you know, enough with the CBAs. Let's move on to, uh, which, <laughs> uh-huh. candidly, maybe not the fifth most important story of the year. Uh, but first in your first in your heart, I mm-hmm. I voted this one not number one, but pretty high on my list. Um, first, just in because coverage. Yeah, my Bronco had a lot of Derek Rose trial. If I haven't tipped it off yet, um, so I I covered this one quite a bit. Uh, was real involved, uh, as well as Dan Wallach was as well. And so I think, to me, the reason why I think this was important and it was a very interesting case in 2016 was because it was the really the only actual trial that I can think of where a high-profile high celebrity athlete was involved, was in the courtroom, in front of a jury, on the stand. Um, and then we actually had a jury opinion, and obviously... Derek Rose was found not liable and his, uh, his two friends. Um, and so just, just the exercise of actually going through the trial, I thought was just really fascinating in this case. Um, you know, it was obviously up until midsummer, really slow case. Uh, I was attempting to report on it and write about it and no one was really paying attention. Um, you know, it finally picked up some steam through some really vulgar court filings. Um, that made Derrick Rose look not so great. And finally the media picked up on it. And then through the trial, you know, it was, uh, at least as far as I could tell, was it was a huge, huge story. It became a media circus. For the first six months or seven, you know, months of the calendar year, no one was really talking about the Rose case. And then you wrote about the summary judgment decision. And, and, you know, slowly but surely, it got on the media's radar. And throughout the latter part of August, September, and a good part of October, it was the sports law story of that six- to eight-week period. It had everything. It had sex, race relations, the issue of consent, uh, you know, sexual the allegations of sexual violence, and as you pointed out, a real trial. I mean, we, we, we're, we're sports lawyers. We talk about sports law, and for once, you had an O.J. Simpson type of circus playing out over, you know, a one-week to two-week period with wall-to-wall, you know, trial commentary and coverage. I mean, uh, our first two out of our first three episodes were devoted to Derrick Rose. So I think it just became this volcano that erupted and was, a, a, was, was an exciting, you know, case to cover. Right. And I think, you know, like we were talking about at the very beginning about how we had these big stories break at the right time with the HGH gate breaking as Peyton Manning is making his Super Bowl run with, um, you know, Russian doping breaking before the Olympics. 
this sort of the trial happening right as the NBA season is is getting underway, it was a perfect time for this story to break because you had this will he or won't he? Will he be in the courtroom or will he be at the game? Um, you know, how much time is he going to miss from trial versus how much tri- time is he going to miss from practice or uh, or from playing with his teammates on the court? And so it was this sort of situation where, you know, especially in the New York media as well with him being, um, you know, on the Knicks this year, it was it was a great time for the trial and all the news surrounding it to break open and, and really um, hit the media and hit the fans. And, and that was a perfect time for it to break open. Yeah, there's a little of that, but it also you know, had an impact on the three biggest media markets in the U.S. You know, he, he obviously was playing on the Knicks. He's from Chicago, was a Chicago Bull forever. Uh, and then the trial was in L.A. So it kind of touched all of these markets. It really drew, drew uh, interest from different fan bases uh, across the U.S. And it was interesting because I'm, I'm from Chicago. I was a Bulls season tickets holder for until we moved a couple of years ago. Um, but talking to people in Chicago, they still felt like, you know, talking to them just when I was back a few weeks ago, um, they didn't think that it really got that much media coverage in Chicago and it wasn't that widely reported on, which is interesting. And, um, you know, it was one of those stories for me that, um, I really started to notice different media outlets covering things in different ways and, and, um, specifically certain New York outlets and I won't name them. Um, but, but, you know, national outlets with New York branches or, or big New York outlets basically being completely hands off of the story, except for reporting like bare facts. And I think, you know, part of that is they want to have a relationship with this athlete moving forward. They didn't want to report some of the more uh, vulgar, whatever you want to call it, allegations. Um, and so they would just intentionally remove themselves from the coverage. And then there was the New York Post. Yeah, there was the other side of the New York Post. Uh, Julia Marsh, uh, who's a friend of the programs and a friend of ours, actually flew out to Los Angeles to cover the trial for 10 days and uh, gave us expert columns, right? We had dueling columns, uh, you know, one day taking respective sides of the case. So I think the tabloids in New York, such as the Daily New York Daily News, the New York Post, blanketed the case and of course online publications such as you know deadspin and think progress you know completely went to town on the derrick rose case by the way we didn't talk about the result derrick rose ended up um with a defense verdict and you know he uh, prevailed following a trial the case is now on appeal and uh it is on a slow docket in the ninth circuit u.s court of appeals we probably will not get an appellate decision until late next year after derrick rose is already in training camp for either the new york knicks or some other team following his free agency so the story is not over uh but i don't think it will ever reach the buzz that it had throughout the months of september and october it was truly a great story and there was some some really top-notch reporting on it while some papers may have ducked the controversy. I think the tabloids in New York and several of the publications, newspapers in L.A. Uh, really blanketed the case. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you guys have any ideas of uh, cases that are out there right now that we may get that big O.J. Simpson-like trial in 2017? Just off the top of your head. Joe, oh, oh, I'll let Ian answer because he is Mr. New Orleans and he has one case in his own backyard that is my candidate. Yeah, uh, you know, Joe McKnight uh, case is certainly um, a situation where you know that may be an athlete um, 
involved. We recently had the Will Smith case. Um, that's not a future one, but um, where uh, Will Smith was was killed um, by another football player, although uh, not a professional one. Um, and Cardell Hayes was was convicted of the jury of uh, of manslaughter in that case. So New Orleans seems to be the uh, the hub for um, professional football players um, being killed and and then subsequent trials. Let's hope that we don't have any more uh, hometown stars that are that are killed anytime soon. And, and it's a hub for sports law, apparently too. It seems like uh, every guest on this show recently is from Tulane Law School. Or has some connection to New Orleans, right? Um, Got to shout out to my alma mater, uh, Great Tulane Sports Law Program, and, and certainly y'all have Gabe coming on. Um, that's going to be a great podcast. But he he does a lot of work to, to help keep New Orleans to be a, a sports law mecca for us. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure on you tonight, Ian. You're um, you're in between Warren Zola and Gabe Feldman. Good luck to you on that. that those, are two, <laughs> those are two titans of sports law. And I, I personally think the McKnight case uh, has the potential to be uh, probably, the, uh, probably a very exciting trial and major sports law story for 2017 because of, look what it has. It has you know, white on black violence and a referendum on, on stand your ground laws and the castle doctrine, and it could go to trial. And most cases we talk about are either handled at the appellate level or we report based on, you know, court filings. This one will be an emotional, intense, you know, multi-day trial taking place in, in, in Jefferson Parish in New Orleans, just like the Will Smith trial received a monumental amount of attention when it actually went to trial. I think McKnight's going to be even bigger. Yeah, I think it could be. And a couple other ones that caught my eye, I think that, have the potential to go to trial either late this year or early next are the uh, JPP uh, Adam Schefter ESPN trial in, in Dan's backyard in Florida. Um, as well as there's this, this Lance Armstrong false claims case that's really flying under the radar. It's, a, it's a kind of a fascinating case. It's in D.C. Uh, we have potentially the Tabo Cephalosha civil case against the NYPD. Um, those are a few that I have kind of tab down and I'm keeping an eye on that have the potential to go to trial. Uh, you know, we've seen Cephalosha already go to trial in his criminal case. Um, and so it, you'd think that he, I mean, maybe he'll settle if the, if the NYPD offers him a, you know, a sizable amount of money, but he, he seems to be taking this thing on principle. So that's one that I could see very likely to go to trial. I mean, JPP could be huge. You're talking about um, ESPN, Adam Schefter, coming on the heels of these um, sizable judgments against media companies in these invasion of privacy lawsuits. You know, you have the Gawker case and the Aaron Andrews case. Should the uh, lawsuit filed by JPP, Jason Pierre-Paul, actually go to trial, I think that is going to be a national story that will move the needle. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm skeptical that this will ever get to trial. Um, I think if it survives a motion for summary judgment, um, you'll see the parties, you know, settle because uh, at some point this is a matter of, you know, you know, it's never the principle. It's about the money. And I don't see that JPP is going to suffer uh, greatly financially because, as a result of this disclosure. He's had a terrific season and will likely sign uh, a major contract in free agency during the off season. So I think the parameters of a settlement, a reasonable settlement, maybe in the high seven figures, low eight figures, are probably already in place. So I would be surprised to see it go to trial. But if it does go to trial, 
this could be the big one of 2017. Well, I've managed to get us uh, pretty far off topic here, as, <laughs> as usual. Uh, but bringing us back to our, our list, we're now down to the top four. Number four is the uh, kind of a broad group, but the college sexual assault cases. And this, uh, you know, I think the headliner here is obviously the Baylor <laughs> cases, um, which, you know, obviously. Um, just a ton of lawsuits stemming from that. There's, uh, to my knowledge, four Title IX lawsuits filed by, um, I think there's between eight and ten women suing the school for uh, failure to supervise um, the students, many of which are athletes. There's been uh, legal action by Art Bryles, the ex-coach, um, suing the Board of Regents over basically a defamation claim that's he he's claiming that he's prevented from getting a job because of uh, the way they've handled the case. And there's this Pepper Hamilton reports. Pepper Hamilton's a, a Philadelphia law firm. They came in, did an in, internal investigation of what happened. They came out with a 15 to 20 page. I can't remember how, exactly how long it was. Uh, recommendations for the school on how what happened and what they should change. But they never actually put together a full report. Um, and, and so there's there's some of the stories that they never put together a report, so they can't disclose it uh, in these various lawsuits. Um, and that was a, clearly an intentional move by Baylor to take advantage of the attorney-client privilege in order to block, uh, you know, a lot of the details that from these various cases and incidents among uh, Baylor athletes and other Baylor students, uh, you know, in an effort to limit their legal liability. And I think. Um, there's been a lot of double speak coming from Baylor and that they want to be transparent and they want to move on. But at the same time, they're acting in a way that's, um, you know, potentially concealing what, what's actually happened in order to avoid legal liability. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, a just a legal mess. There's things coming from every direction in that case. And then additionally, we kind of touched on it already, but the, the Minnesota case was a big one in 2016, and so was a little earlier in the year, University of Tennessee case. And I don't know if you guys remember, uh, or I think the Title IX lawsuit with Tennessee settled. Yeah, it was a um, it was it was eight female plaintiffs, I think, and it was about a, a 2.5 million dollar settlement in the Tennessee case. Yeah, which I think is the record for a Title IX case, the record settlement. Because I think before that was the Jameis Winston settlement with FSU, which I think was just under a million dollars, which was the record at the time. And then the University of Tennessee case tripled that. So um, obviously that's a big issue. Uh, you know, $2.5 million settlement's huge. Uh, there's other settlement, there's other lawsuits out there, such as University of Kansas has one against it. Some others, obviously the four at Baylor. Um, why did you guys think that this, these were some of the bigger issues in 2016? Well, I think that, uh, you know, this is a sort of thing that we kept seeing it crop up. I think Baylor was the one that really broke through the media and, and became more of a headline issue. Um, you know, having Ken Starr involved, you know, doesn't hurt either um, as someone who's, you know, been involved with sexual legal cases in the past. Um, but, I think that this is the sort of thing that is going to be an issue going forward into 2017 and beyond um, where there are going to be these issues that come up 
Um, it's it's a similar sort of thing to um, you know domestic violence cases that we're going to get to, but it's the sort of thing where does the university have the institutional control? Um, are they believing the coach? Are they sweeping it under the rug? Um, what are they doing with the players? There's so many different issues involved in these cases, legal issues, uh, and then you have the Title IX issues and uh, the effect on the plaintiffs and, and um, sexual assault issue cases are something that it's very serious and it's a situation where there can be a lot of misrepresentations thrown around as we saw with the Derrick Rose case. There can be a lot of issues, whether it's race involved um, and a lot of misreporting and misunderstanding too. So there's all kinds of media, legal, um, you know, NCAA issues involved in all of these cases. It's kind of a full package, I think, and it's the sort of thing that colleges are going to have to deal with uh, for years to come. And, and really, there's going to have to be a way to figure out how, you know, the NCAA is going to have to talk to universities and its member schools and, and see if they can figure out a, a better system to address this. Because obviously, it's a problem that athletic departments uh, and their staff are having an issue with, one, controlling, preventing this thing from happening, and two, how to address it after it has come to their attention. It's obviously an issue, and, and they're going to have to find some way to resolve that in a, in a better way, more productive way going forward. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because I, I remember I talked speaking with an associate general counsel of a big university earlier this year, and I asked her, um, you know, what, what was, what's the biggest legal concern you have and mind you this isn't just the athletic department this is the associate general counsel of the whole of the whole university and she said title nine we're really worried about title nine it's huge right now we want to make sure we're doing everything we possibly can we want to make sure we're following the law we want to make sure that we're helping our students out because i think that these cases not only i mean obviously they're horrible allegations but you're looking at it from a university perspective but they're only expensive but it, it, it casts the school in a terrible light and it's um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of parents second guessing sending their their children to schools that have these allegations that they're just so out of control, and that really hurts the school from from a number of layers. Right, and I, I think it it hits the sort of trifecta where you know schools are in a tight position where you know they obviously have relationships and obligations with their employees, with the coaching staff, with the athletic director. Uh, they obviously have an obligation to. Um, help and protect their students who are on the football team or basketball team or whatever team it may be. Um, but they also absolutely have an obligation to the other students uh, who may be affected by the, the, the players in their athletic organizations and athletic teams who are committing these acts. And, and so it's a sort of situation where the, the university is in the tight spot of having duties to all the parties involved. And I think that's part of the reason why these issues are so thorny. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward. That's not going anywhere. Uh, and we're finally down to the top three. And we actually have a tie for number two and number three, uh, both receiving 20 of the possible 30 votes. Um, it, the first one is legalizing sports betting. And Dan, I'll, I'll throw that one over to you to, to kind of give the background of what happened this year with the highlight of the uh, Christie 2 case. Well, yeah, when we talk about live court proceedings, the, but the, perhaps the biggest one of them all was the en banc rehearing that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit conducted in the middle of February. Um, New Jersey has been down this road before. It had tried to legalize sports betting in 2012 and ran into an adverse uh, federal circuit court opinion that 
opened the door to Christie too. The prior opinion um, essentially in so many words said New Jersey would be able uh, to repeal, in order to avoid the constitutional problem, New Jersey has a choice, and one of the choices would be to repeal. Its pro, it would either be to maintain its sports betting prohibitions or to repeal them, and it would be up to the state to determine the exact contours of that kind of prohibition. So New Jersey followed through and went ahead and repealed their law, but only in part. And what New Jersey did was decriminalize sports gambling at casinos and racetracks and at nowhere else. And the Third Circuit conducted a you know a hearing in February, and which led to a an August uh, divided opinion, nine to three. And there were twelve judges on the en banc panel, and the uh, Third Circuit concluded that New Jersey's plan to legalize sports betting through this partial repeal uh, violated PASPA. And in any event, PASPA was w- remains the law of the land, and uh, the, the court um, rejected New Jersey's attempt to argue that the law was unconstitutional. So, um, the third the Third Circuit decision was the big decision in the sports betting arena this year, and New Jersey again reached the potentially the end of the road. But after uh, the Third Circuit issued its opinion, New Jersey filed a petition for writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. And we're about to find out two weeks from today and two weeks from tomorrow whether the U.S. Supreme Court will accept review of the Christie 2 case. Now, the reason this is a big story is uh, we're talking about the future of sports gambling in the United States. It is not simply about the state of New Jersey. If New Jersey were to prevail before the Supreme Court, it would open up the floodgates for sports betting nationally. Uh, following New Jersey, you would see a whole host of states enact similar laws. And even with a, uh, e- even if the Supreme Court were to deny certiorari, uh, the New Jersey sports betting case is the tip of the iceberg. We're just at the beginning of the probably a, a, a three to five year period over which uh, sports betting will probably become legal. The question is, will it be legal through a court decision? Will it be legal because another state successfully challenges PASPA? Or will Congress ultimately uh, amend or repeal PASPA to allow states the option of uh, authorizing sports betting within their borders. And there are so many moving parts here. You've got Christie too. You've got the potential Supreme Court possibility. You have states like New York and Mississippi that have begun to make um, a little bit of noise about challenging PASPA in court. You have New Jersey uh, reacting to its loss in Christie too by threatening to completely decriminalize sports betting within its state. And Then on another front, the American Gaming Association, which is the trade arm or the lobbying arm of the U.S. casino industry, they are beginning uh, in 2016 and 17 to actively lobby for repeal of PASPA. So there's so much that is that has already happened with much more to follow in 2017. So from, in my opinion, the New Jersey sports betting case is about the broader subject of legalizing sports betting nationally. Yeah, I think the, the big thing that I saw was, well, in Christie 1, New Jersey basically lost at every level. And in Christie 2, that same pattern continued, but then we got to the, the appeal level. They lost the appeal and they filed for en, en banc which is a bit of a Hail Mary, right? I mean, Dan, what's like, the percentage of cases? Like less than zero? <laughs> no. Yeah. Like- uh, the, the percentage, uh, I'll, put it, I'll put a finer point on it. Uh, most circuit courts of appeal throughout the country hear 
only a couple of en banc cases each year out of hundreds that are filed. The rate of en banc grant, the, the rate of an en banc grant within the circuit court is probably lower than the percentage rate for getting a petition for writ of certiorari granted by the U.S. Supreme Court. It hardly ever happens. Uh, in 2015, the Third Circuit only heard one en banc case. And I think this year they may have heard two or three. So it was a signal that, that, it, that, that the issue of PASPA and whether it remains a constitutional law, that is a, that is a, a hotly contested issue within the Third Circuit. And, and, and that gives proponents of sports betting hope that the Supreme Court may weigh in and grant cert because the um, issues raised in the Christie 2 case transcend sports betting. Uh, it, the, 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 the issues framed for the Supreme Court focus on whether the federal government, whether Congress – can prevent states from repealing their own laws. And that presents a greater threat to state autonomy uh, than the Christie 1 case did. And there are many who believe, and I'm among them, uh, that New Jersey's uh, search chances before the U.S. Supreme Court are, are actually pretty decent. I think certiorari will probably be denied just based on a numbers game because we only have eight justices and you need four that would uh, have to decide to hear it. And then even if cert is granted, New Jersey would need to win five out of eight of those justices unless a ninth is appointed in time. So the, the roadblocks are still um, up there and the barriers are still in place. New Jersey is a long way away from winning that Christie case. They've lost at every stage. But I, but I believe 2017 will be a breakthrough year in sports betting, either because another state will take up the challenge or New Jersey will follow through on its promise to completely repeal its sports betting prohibitions. And if that happens, I think that might be the beginning of the end of PASPA. Right. And I think that, honestly, uh, seeing the CERT grant as, as unlikely with the Supreme Court, I'm personally rooting for uh, the nuclear option in New Jersey. I just think that would be um, a fascinating situation to watch unfold. Um, I mean, yep. it would be great for us to cover it. Um, and it would be just an amazing thing to see, um, you know, one, obviously, you know, how the courts deal with it. It's going to go through court, even though the, you know, the courts have said that that's the sort of thing that would pass muster. Um, and then also how the subsequent legislation goes. I mean, it would be a, a free for all basically, uh, in the state of New Jersey and, uh, would just be a great kind of experiment, um, to see how this would all work. I, I'm, I'm rooting for it just from a, an interest standpoint. Yeah, I think that would also really put the pressure on the sports leagues to come to the table and, and start turning their tune as far as pushing for federal or state regulation of sports betting, um, which yeah. is ultimately, I think, where everyone wants to end up. But at the same time, uh, you know, the way to get there may be through this drastic nuclear option or continued litigation. Yeah, I mean, I want to see it for no other reason than to see all the cold takes out there that say, oh, it's never going to happen. Uh, no politician is ever going to vote in favor of a complete repeal. Well, I call BS on that because we're talking about New Jersey. You know, they've, uh, they've gone down this road so many times, and now they're backed into a corner. And I view this as more of a tactic to get to their ultimate goal than a, than a desire to completely decriminalize it. Uh, I mean, they don't have to completely decriminalize it. They can phase in restrictions uh, on, under the language of, or as, as the dissenting opinion from Judge uh, Fuentes suggested, what's to stop New Jersey from completely repealing its sports betting prohibition and then, and then layering on 
like later enacted restrictions such as an age or a location restriction. So there are many ways to skin the cat and the New Jersey story is far from over. And uh, I, I think even if the Supreme Court denies cert, uh, New Jersey will go through with some form of another repeal, either a complete repeal or a more realistic partial repeal that is not quite as selective as the casino-friendly and the racetrack-friendly repeal law that was passed in 2014. So, um, you know, New Jersey will remain um, in the mix uh, for legalizing sports gambling, but but I would expect to see my prediction for 2017 is that Mississippi will be the next state to take up the battle. You can bet on it. <laughs> First joke of the night. All right, there we go. Yeah, we we need to improve the joke ratio. I, I think. <laughs> um, all right. Well, tied for number two. Moving on to the the second to last one now. Tied for number two was. Domestic violence cases in pro sports, and this encompassed uh, really a couple of different categories. The first one is the Major League Baseball cases, and those are, of course, the um, Araldus Chapman, Jose Reyes, uh, suspensions that were divvied out, as well as um, I'm blanking on the third player who got suspended's name. He was an Atlanta Braves pitcher, I believe. Um, and then uh, Yasiel Puig, who ultimately wasn't suspended but was uh, investigated by Major League Baseball. And really, this was interesting to me, at least, because this was the first time that the Major League Baseball's new domestic violence policy was put into place. Uh, the policy was agreed upon between the Players Association and the league in, I believe it was fall or maybe winter of last year. And this was the first year it was put into place. And it was an interesting strategy by um, Rob Manfred. The policy basically gave him wide-ranging latitude to choose the number of games, uh, you know, choose how it was implemented, how long, things like that. It gave him a ton of power. And uh, ultimately we saw him take the strategy of coming to agreements with players rather than just arbitrarily picking a number. Uh, and I really think that he was doing this in order to just kind of set precedence. So later on, you know, if, if he wants to give a player a number for a certain type of alleged action that he can do so and have some precedence to back it up if the player appeals and ultimately files a lawsuit. So um, the way that they went about divvying out domestic violence suspensions in sort of their first run at it this year was, was pretty fascinating for me. Um, you know, we saw suspensions, uh, I think, ranging from like 35 games to 75 games in those general areas. Um, it's tough to say why he picked one one number of games or the other, uh, I'm sure arguments can be made in that effect. And then, of course, the other category, uh, which is essentially one case on its own, which is the Josh Brown case, which was a pretty unique one with the NFL, where they suspended Josh Brown for one game after, I think, a over a year-long investigation. And um, ultimately, uh, a few weeks after that, more police documents were released, including his journal and some other documents that showed... The, the true extent of of what occurred between him and his now ex-wife, Molly. And uh, there was a huge public outcry into the uh, one-game suspension, even though the, the NFL's policy, unlike the MLB's policy, does say a number of games that a player should be suspended. And the baseline number is six games, um, which can be lowered or raised depending on mitigating or aggregating factors. Uh, you know, there's no clear 
mitigating factors here for Josh Brown. So they somehow came to one game. We will never know. Um, the NFL reopened the Josh Brown investigation, uh, and the New York Giants ended up cutting him because of the huge public outcry. And we really haven't heard from the NFL since then. There's There's been no clear determination that they're going to keep investigating him, that they're ultimately going to come to any resolution whatsoever. Uh, you know, we've done a podcast on this before. I think just about everyone has come to the conclusion that Josh Brown's playing career is over. And so the NFL may just want to let this one drift off into the sunset. Um, but what did you guys think about the domestic violence cases this year? Okay, I'll, I'll jump into the void here. I mean, if, if Rob Manfred has aced the domestic violence policy, Roger Goodell has continually uh, flunks it. If every domestic violence case is a test of the policy, um, it, it just seems as whether we're talking about Ray Rice or Josh Brown or Ezekiel Elliott, um, there are significant um, shortcomings in how the policy has been applied. Uh, the proceed, you know, the, the the process by which it has been investigated, and of course, the ultimate punishment you have uh, with Elliot. You know, his case is 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 been placed in abeyance, probably because of the playoff run uh, that they don't want to deal with it during the the NFL season. So uh, questions um, are raised by that as to uh, you know whether there are any improper influences on the punishment or the process by which a player is investigated. And, of course, Josh Brown coming on the heels of Ray Rice is just simply uh, you know, more of the same from the NFL. Um, but, that, but therein lies the difference between Manfred, um, a, a trained attorney, and Roger Goodell, uh, not a trained attorney. Manfred was wise, and, and, and you nailed it on the head, Dan. Um, he set out to settle and, and reach a compromise with a baseline suspension uh, for several of these players to establish the type of precedent that Roger Goodell has never been able to accomplish. In fact, Goodell runs away and disavows any of the prior punishment as a, as a comparator. So the difference between how the NFL and how Major League Baseball handled domestic violence cases, you couldn't get more uh, stark and more different between the two approaches. I think it's a matter of, uh, uh, of consistency and um, you know, clarity. And the NFL's, uh, apply, the NFL's application of the domestic violence policy, it just seems like it lacks any rhyme or reason in every case raises uh, a wealth of questions about whether the punishment and the process were fair. Right. And I think that, like you were saying, this this is a study in contrast, just like the CBA negotiations um, with the MLB, you know, able to reach an amicable conclusion with, you know, the players and, and to try to have something that is a progression and that works for them and that um, is going to be something positive for them moving forward, I think, the same sort of thing in this case, the MLB and the players were able to reach a, a domestic violence policy that they're now putting into effect um, properly. And, and the NFL is is kind of proceeding as it continues to do in seemingly every legal case haphazardly and inconsistently. Um, and so I think that's another one of those study and contrast in terms of the management at the top. And I think that in another, this is maybe not the best comparison, but another comparison is we just were talking about the... Um, you know, college sexual assault cases, uh, to me, I think that this is that these domestic violence cases are another situation where um, the league has to figure out some sort of 
proactive way to deal with these cases in, in, a, in a better way. Um, and certainly MLB has, has figured out how to do that. And the NFL uh, maybe hasn't quite figured it out yet and may never will. We'll, we'll have to see you know, whether that depends on the leadership at the top. But you know, they've got to talk to teams about you know, trying to do education with players. Um, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily going to help, but, but, you know, you have to look at ways to reach out to rookies, uh, incorporate this into the rookie symposium that the, the Players Association does. Um, there, there needs to be more upfront education about these sorts of issues, too, in addition to the, the post hoc litigation and, and discipline issues that come about after these cases arise. But just like these sexual assault cases, the NFL and, and all leagues, not just not just the NFL, but all leagues have to figure out a way to try to deal with these cases up front and prevent them from happening. Um, a lot of what we talk about in the sports hall world is what happens after they do, but I don't think there's enough being talked about um, as to how the leagues can get players you know, to stop doing these things and, uh, and to be more responsible. Yeah, I think uh, to piggyback on that point, another thing they need to do is really focus on the victim. And, um, you know, we saw the Josh Brown case where, um, it seemed like the NFL investigators were like attack, you know, scaring her almost where she was afraid when they would call her. Um, and there's supposedly programs in place to, to do outreach, but there's no real evidence that that actually happens or that they have a real good sense of how to do that. And honestly, you know, the most important thing here is like you said, it's prevention is fantastic, but it's tough to do that. You can do as much as you can as far as education, but um, unfortunately, assuming that this is going to occur, I think rehabilitation is really the other aspect that's important. And, you know, frankly, the MLB, for example, hasn't done a fantastic job of that either. It was reported that Chapman went to one counseling session, um, you know, after, as a part of his treatment, quote unquote, treatment during his suspension this past year. Um, and, and really, when he was traded to the Cubs and questioned about the incident, didn't show a whole lot of remorse or any recognition that he had done anything wrong. Um, and so I think there's there's a lot of room for improvement. And to that point, um, because of these new collective bargaining agreements are number six uh, in both the MLB and <laughs> NBA, which, as I mentioned, we don't have them yet, so we don't quite know everything that's in there, but it's been reported that um, the NBA is going to have a brand new domestic violence policy. They don't have a, technically have one yet. They have a, a policy against violent felonies, which may or may not include a domestic violence incident. And the MLB um, was reported to maybe renegotiate some of the details of that policy as well. So um, certainly this is another issue that's going to you know, keep coming up again and again, and, and, and we'll see the NFL in the Ezekiel Elliott case, as Dan noted, and, you know, potentially the application of some new, uh, some new policies in the MLB and NBA. Yeah. And for the record, I, Dan mentioned that I'll just stir the pot here a little bit, but comparing, uh, Goodell and Manfred, um, I don't particularly think that Rob Manfred's done a, done a good job with the policy. It's certainly better than the NFL, but I think there's a lot of things that, that they're lacking. Um, and I don't know if the, the, the right approach was to settle all these cases. I mean, if they're confident in what they collectively bargained, he should suspend a player based on his discipline. If they appeal that, that's the time to test the policy. 
Um, so in my opinion, for him to come out and give a player a lesser number of games as a quote-unquote settlement so they won't appeal it, um, is kind of undercutting his own power and his own collective bargaining. Right, and I, I think that I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I, I think it'll be interesting to see going forward. You know, certainly these were the first cases under the policy. So it'll be interesting to see if, look, this is a sort of conflict-averse, uh, you know, pro uh, policy that he takes and an approach that he takes towards the the DV policy, or if he looked at it as, look, let me get these first few cases out of the way um, and try to figure out how we handle these. Uh, but certainly, this is something that's new for all of the leagues. Um, not a new situation, but uh, a new way of of dealing with all of these domestic violence situations. And certainly, the media spotlight on these cases is even brighter and stronger than it has been ever in the past. So. I think the the leagues are all kind of tiptoeing around these sort of situations, or at least you know they should be. Um, the NFL may not be tiptoeing quite so well, but uh, <laughs> you know the certainly uh, it'll be interesting to see if Manfred continues this approach or if this was just a, a one-off in terms of we have a new policy and, and let me get these precedents sort of thing. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that this was necessarily the best move from uh, you know a bigger picture, but. Uh, we'll have to see if it's a if it's a one off or not. Okay, I mean, my 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 final point on on this one is that you know Manfred's hands are somewhat tied, or to a limited extent, they're tied by the absence of a criminal adjudication. I mean, in in some of these domestic violence so called cases, you know, in the Chapman case and the Familia case, um, the, the criminal prosecution either was you know just dropped or just did not proceed either because of good lawyering or. Uh, the victim just didn't want to pursue the case. So you have to balance the need for an effective domestic violence policy and have some, you know, some sense of proportion with the fact that the cases are just accusations and, you know, the MLB and the NFL are wading into intrafamily disputes where there, where there has been no real fact-finding and the criminal justice system has uh, basically either let it go or not pursu- or not pursued it. So it's a re- it's a real hard case when you don't have a conviction or or a willing you know witness you know willing to give testimony. And, and I think that uh, you know Dan, former commissioner of the NFL, Paul Tagliabue, would probably uh, agree spot on with you right there. I mean that was a, a big part of his uh, evaluation yeah. when when doing discipline cases to try to see how the, the legal situation worked itself out, how the criminal justice system evaluated the case before acting. Yeah. That's been a big part of the reason why uh, the players have had a big issue with Goodell and, and how he's jumped on disciplinary proceedings, not just in the domestic violence area, but uh, in all um, disciplinary proceedings. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that underlies all of commissioner discipline in sports, uh, especially when there is no conviction, which is in, you know, the vast majority of this domestic violence and sexual assault cases. So um, difficult. And there's been a lot of really good articles and things written about balancing both sides of that equation. And we had uh, Diana Moskovitz of Deadspin on, who was one of the more more interesting conversations we've had, a little out-of-the-box ideas and how to fix the policy. So I'd recommend you guys going back and listening to that one if you haven't already. And without further ado... Drum roll, please. We, we finally made it to number one, and if you haven't guessed it already, um, it is the Flategate, and also wrapped into that, the Adrian Peterson case. Gentlemen. The, the daddy of all gates. 
there are people who think Watergate was named after Deflategate. It has become the definitive gate among all gates. But uh, Ian, um, any, any uh, initial thoughts on, on what Deflategate means and how, uh, how it fits into our top 10 list? I think by far it's number one unanimously. Well, uh, it's, it's a good thing because I was, I think, the only one who didn't put it at the top of my list. Um, I, I, I had it a, a little bit farther down. Uh, what? I think, I, <laughs> I think in terms of, of domestic media attention in the United States, I think it obviously has to be up there as number one, um, certainly in terms of the amount of coverage the case got, in terms of how the case captured the public's attention um, or drove the public away, at least the non-Boston sports fan uh, public um, were at, at a certain point tired of hearing about it. But for us as sports law commentators and sports lawyers, um, obviously this was our bread and butter and we all three of us at least love this uh, and everybody else did too uh, in the community, sports law community. Um, I, I think the, the, the mind boggling thing about the, the flake gate, the, the, the Brady and Peterson precedents combined is just the sheer amount of precedent that Goodell now has behind him for his, extremely broad i mean i don't even know if you can if you can still say extremely broad maybe unlimited is a is a perhaps better um more accurate term but uh just this idea that goodell can shoehorn almost anything uh you know i don't know if almost is a good qualifier there but can shoehorn anything into conduct detrimental um precedent no longer matters uh in terms of what prior arbitrators have decided he can he can ignore precedent um, he just has to give some sort of colorable explanation for his discipline at this point. Um, and just the, if you think about the logical extension just of, of the massive power that he has now, I mean, I think it got brought up on y- y'all's podcast with Bob McGovern um, a few episodes ago. But you listen to that? Yeah. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but this idea that you can now be punished for general awareness of others' rule breaking and, and, you know, whether or not the, the NFL and Goodell choose to actually, you know, go forward with that sort of overreach um, doesn't really matter. I, I think it, the fact is that Goodell now has that power. He can punish any player for being generally aware of others' rules breaking, even if they're not another player, if it's just an employee of a team. Uh, it would be interesting to see a situation where it was a non-employee of a team, like a, a stadium employee or something like that, uh, or a media member. Um you know, I think all of that sort of thing is something that would be upheld by a court under this uh, precedent, at least in the Second Circuit's jurisdiction, um, maybe not in other jurisdictions. But uh, it's just a, a vast, wide-reaching opinion um, that continues to, to allow Goodell to uh, wreak havoc on uh, the league's PR and, and legal system and uh, how player discipline is evaluated. Yeah, I mean, after all, wasn't Jimmy Haslam generally aware of a scheme to defraud uh, in his trucking business? I mean, <laughs> we, we, could take, we could take this uh, to, to so many extremes. I mean, this is the, the case of them all, the case that spawned our podcast, Conduct Detrimental. Um, the, the, the implications of, of the Peterson decision and the Brady decision are going to govern uh, and, and overshadow, you know, player management um, disciplinary disputes. Uh, you know, for the next generation, unless and until um, there's an alteration in the collective bargaining agreement, or another federal judicial circuit decides in, it decides the issue differently. I mean, the law of the Second Circuit and Eighth Circuit is pretty clear. 
Uh, but I think players, I, I, I don't think the courthouse door is closed to the resolution of um, the scope of Commissioner Goodell's powers. Um, extreme judicial deference is given to arbitration awards, and the facts of Peterson and, and Brady were so player, well, so player friendly in terms of the process uh, that I was surprised by the outcome, not just in one of those cases, but both of them. But, but I, I don't think all hope is lost. Uh, I, I think there could be another test case down the line. It just may not have to be, it just may be in a different circuit. Yeah, and I think that's the best route because from everything that we've heard from Roger Goodell's mouth, the one thing that he really won't give up, unless it's just, I don't even know what the players would have to give up to get it, but it is this power, this overarching power to discipline mm-hmm. players. Um, and so, you know, I hear all these stories, well, are the players going to step up during the next CBA? And it's it's just unreasonable to think that they would lock out over this one piece because really, and we've said this before, but uh, when you think about it, only a handful of players get suspended mm-hmm. under these um, this provision in any given year. No player thinks it's going to be them. Ask Tom Brady that. And... Um, so when it comes down to the vote on a CBA, whether we hold out over this one provision or we don't, they're going to cave. They're going to cave for the money. They're going to cave for other things they're seeking. They're not going to want to give up an 18-game schedule. Um, I just don't see any possibility of that happening. So you know, the only way to change this and to change the standard will be for a court to come in and rule differently. And you know, if it is a different circuit... Um, you know, that would set up a circuit split. And then ultimately we could see that next case, if it goes in the player's favor, end up in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Dan, do you think, what do you think would have happened if, uh, if uh, the players union had filed in the district of Massachusetts? Of course, the NFL won the race to the courthouse. They uh, timed the issuance of the arbitration ruling uh, so that they can uh, basically race to the Southern district clerk and file a suit. But if Brady had filed in the district of Massachusetts, and had advanced the argument that the NFL um, had uh, fraudulently or anticipatorily, you know, raced to the courthouse to win the forum battle. I think the outcome in the District of Massachusetts federal court and potentially the First Circuit could have been different. Uh, but that's all for posterity, and uh, you know, bad cases make bad law. And for the next three, four years, I don't think we're going to have a case that reaches the magnitude of Tom Brady or Adrian Peterson, but uh, we didn't see either of these two cases coming two, three years ago, uh, and I'm hopeful uh, that, that this issue will get uh, teed up in, in another federal judicial circuit so that we can ultimately uh, you know, have you know, a circuit split to maybe reach the Supreme Court. But for my money, I mean, we, we could talk about the implications of Deflategate for two, three, four hours, but for my money, this was definitely the oral argument of the year. It, not only was it the best case, of the year, the top sports law story of the year, but it was the most compelling oral argument. I attended uh, the Second Circuit oral argument in early March, and after the first five minutes, I was sitting in a row with right next to Alan Milstein and Michael McCann, and after five minutes, we were looking at each other with that kind of look that Brady's got this in the bag. And then you could just feel the air come out of the room, the, the, the deflating of the room with the hostile line of questioning, and you just got the sense that everything just pivoted 
uh, within the span of a couple of seconds, and and it became very apparent. And that's why that's why oral argument is such a wonderful vehicle. Um, it leaves very little doubt in your mind as to who wins or loses by the end of the argument. And at the end of that one hour hearing, there was no doubt in any of our minds that Brady was going to lose uh, the appeal. And the swiftness in which the decision was released a mere four or five weeks after oral argument, which is, which is lightning fast for a federal appellate uh, decision, I mean, Even speaks volumes. Dissent. What? Even with the dissent, too. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing came down in five weeks, but we knew the result when we walked out of that courthouse on, on, March, on March 2nd. There was no question that Brady had lost, and, and, and that really points to how exciting and how uh, meaningful attending or, or being part of a, of, of a federal appellate oral argument is. When, you, when you're there, um, it, you, you, just, you, you can hear and feel the entire case encapsulated in one hour. Yeah, I would recommend our uh, listening audience to, if you could, just go for any case, especially if you know the background and go listen to an oral argument. Um, I've gone over to the Supreme Court a number of times, the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and listened to arguments there. That is an absolutely once-in-a-lifetime fascinating experience. So if you're in D.C., um, anyone can do it. You just have to get there a little early, um, depending on the day. New Jersey sports betting in April? Yeah, I'll be there if it goes. Okay. But uh, will, will, will somebody sponsor us? We need sponsors. Yeah, yeah. I think we need sponsors to send us to court hearings all over the country. If if, if someone's willing to sponsor us, we're there. Yeah, but you know this this really was the case that had it all. I mean, it had the big name player. Um, it had this sort of uh, classic. You know, you could call it call it call Goodell a villain. Uh, this guy who is overreaching in his powers and, and arbitrariness and. You also have the background of the case in terms of the fact that it had to be, of course, the Patriots who had the prior history of, you know, Spygate, who have legions of NFL fans who love to hate them because, you know, they're so good, among other reasons. Um, and you've got, of course, the timing of it again. We talk about all these cases, the, the particular timing originally when this all happened in the lead up to the Super Bowl. Um, and then, you know, again, the, the oral argument timing happens, you know, at this precise right moment when there's no other sports law news going on and it has the perfect opportunity to blow up once again, uh, you know, a year and a half, two years after it all uh, kicks off. And, you know, this case had it all, the, you know, every, the characters, the timing, the story, uh, the drama, it was everything. And the national media attention. I mean, there were so many superstars throughout, uh, you know, the entire coverage of Deflategate. I mean, it just seemed Michael McCann became a household name. Um, great reporting from, uh, you know, Michael Hurley, Bob McGovern, Gary Myers, Ben Volan. It was the most, uh, what makes it, uh, in my opinion, the top sports law story of the year was just the sheer volume of national media coverage. Don't sell yourself short on that either, Dan. Oh yeah, and and uh, White Bronco and Wallach Legal and uh, uh, EMP and, yeah. and EMP Gun and uh, and uh, Rafi Melkonian. I mean, you you had you had lawyers. What was that? Hashtag appellate Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> you had you had lawyers making their debut on this case that no one had ever heard of, and as a result of Deflategate, so many of us are still in the game. So it's the case that gave birth 
for better or for worse, I think for better, to a lot of the sports law commentary that is now, you know, blanketing Twitter and blogs and, I mean, probably gave us the motivation to cross over and start weighing in on a number of other stories. Before Deflategate, I was just sports betting and fantasy sports. That was the case that kind of put me over and thought, well, and I thought, well, now I can start to write about other things. So Deflategate was an integral part of my development in the sphere of sports law. Without it, uh, I think I'd still be in this, you know, sports betting, uh, you know, uh, you know, cauldron. And Deflategate really convinced me and excited me about a, a wealth of sports law issues that just go beyond sports gambling. Yeah, well, I think we've uh, hit our record time. We're pushing two hours now, gentlemen. So we should probably wrap it up before we two-parter. Yeah, maybe we should split it up. But uh, Ian, uh, thank you a ton for coming on. That was uh, it was a lot of fun going through those. Um, it was interesting to hear your. Uh, I think Dan and I's lists were probably closer aligned. Yours was a little bit different, so that was that was great. Well, thanks for having me, guys. You know, always a lot of fun, and uh, y- y'all are great. I mean, everybody needs to listen to this podcast, and uh, every time I've listened to it, I've learned something and, and had a lot of fun. This is, you know, the best sports law podcast out there. You guys are, are doing that at a record pace right now. I don't, you're not going to be able to keep it up. <laughs> I take that as a challenge. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, and, and, and th- thank you for saying that, Ian, and we go back tomorrow um, trying to uh, make sense of the world of sports law with Gabe Feldman. We're on a weekly pace. Some days or some weeks we have, you know, two podcasts. Uh, it's a challenge. You know, I'm practicing uh, with a law firm, and I've got all these other outside responsibilities, but the most fun I have each week is to, you know, join Dan and uh, trying to, you know, do a one-hour podcast. It's been a challenge to, <clears throat> and it's been a, an interesting adventure and journey to try to, you know, master this, you know, this form of, uh, you know, me, of, of this medium. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll keep getting better at it. But uh, we look forward to having you on again. Absolutely. And um, if if you so choose, you could be our on the uh, in court correspondent for the Joe for the Joe McKnight. Uh, you know, case whenever whenever it goes to trial, but you're going to have to do battle with C.J. Mordock over that slot. <laughs> I know, I know. He's uh, he's already been talking to me about it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would recommend. Uh, Ian is a just a fantastic Twitter file as well. Is at Ian P Gun. So definitely um, give him a follow and, and check out the Sports Esquires. Um, not only the every week of the, the links, but they also write some great stuff. Ian, are you working on? Um, other than the links dropping tomorrow, are you working on any other articles? I've got a few kind of in the pipeline right now. Um, probably nothing dropping too soon. Going to be catching up on work after the holidays. But the Sports All links will be out every week. And, um, you know, we'll have some, some interesting stuff. I'm working on kind of a, a multi-part series on NCAA amateurism and, and the future of that, which should be interesting. But I'm not sure when that will be done. Um, but the links are always fun to do, and, and I know everybody <laughs> So definitely check those out. Nice, yeah. Amateurism as an early favorite for our top ten this next year. So that'll be that'll be great. Everyone check those out. Yeah, Ian, are you uh, are are you? Do you have any post clerkship plans? Can you tell us about your uh, your current uh, you know clerkship? I think you're your judicial law clerk for a judge in what Jefferson Parish. Yeah, um, doing uh, still clerking right now. No. Uh, news to break um as of yet but i'll definitely let you guys know and and uh it'll be breaking news on on conduct detrimental when uh when i find out 
You'll be an unrestricted free agent soon? <laughs> yeah, potentially. Potentially. Uh, All right. Well, well, thanks again. We, uh, we're looking forward to having you back on. We'll definitely have to make this um, an annual tradition, I think. This was a good one. Yeah, uh, but we're going to have you on before that, I'm sure, as well. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for, for tuning in. Um, you know, again, we, we push the iTunes ratings. Those are super helpful to kind of get the word out. Tell your friends. We're, st- we're stuck um, at seven. We need more reviews. I know. <laughs> Hit that lucky number, unlucky number seven. So no, well, it's anyway. lucky. We've got five. We've got excellent ratings from each one of our seven it's respondents. True. Of course, each one of the seven is my mom uh, using different uh, you know handles on on, on iTunes, <laughs> but. Uh, if you can uh, weigh in and give ratings, it might increase our visibility and uh, help help you know further promote the show. But we're we're doing our best to get the word out, and I think uh, the work stands on its own. And we've had some really good podcasts, this one included, I think, and uh, you know more to come. So we're not going away, and uh, over the next year, we're going to have some great great podcasts. All right, with that, thanks, guys, and we'll talk to you soon.